0: Tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about what uh, is the look of a spiritual man. And I'm going to take my text from Genesis uh, chapter 13. And uh, I, I plan on teaching, but I, I'm not a very good teacher, I'll just be honest with you. Uh, I get a little excited when I'm not supposed to get excited. I tried to ask my mentor, I said, What's the difference between preaching and teaching? And he gave me this. He said, Teaching is where you use more scriptures and you talk slower and don't get so excited. And I thought, well, that's, that's probably not going to work well with me. And uh, I, I like to get excited every now and then. Yeah, we're going to use some scriptures here. I'm going to try to do some sort of contextual teaching on uh, the 13th chapter of Genesis. But if I scream and shout uh, a little bit or if I get excited, don't pay any attention to me. Uh, just feel and do what you're comfortable with. Somebody say amen. I can't tell if you're smiling at me or frowning at me. So I guess that's good in both ways for me. And, uh, but if I could get an amen on occasion, that would help me to speed this along uh, more quickly. Uh, thank you, Brother Barkus for uh, leading us out today. And, and uh, wow, what good time. Got me behind the pulpit in a quick manner. And uh, I thought we'd go till 9 o'clock, so I've got an hour and five minutes. So we should be able to get through this tonight. Amen. That was a joke. You could, you could laugh. I'm not going to keep you here an hour and five minutes. I'll do my best to keep you under that quite a bit. When we turn to Genesis, the 13th chapter, and we begin in verse 1, we see a rather fascinating thing take place, and, and Scripture, to me, is, is so incredible. It is the living Word of God, and we know that God's Word has the ability, no matter how many times that we've read it, and researched it and studied it out. We know that it it has the ability to come alive to us. And I think part of that is because we uh, we live in different times. And we live with different emotions. And we live with different problems. And even uh, others that are around us. Even in our household or in this church. But God's word has the ability at times to come alive to us. And it speaks to us no matter what situation that we are in. I believe that Genesis the 13th chapter is, is right there with that. Because though you may come from a different walk of life, and you may be going through something a little different than myself. I believe that Genesis 13 and 1 has the ability to minister to every believer. Amen. Because I believe that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of the Lord. I believe that God has the ability to build something that we cannot see, that we cannot even fully understand, because faith is a substance of what? Things that are hoped for, the evidence... Now, is that not a perplexing statement in itself? Things not hoped for, evidence of things that I cannot see. If that doesn't sum up the Christian conundrum or or our walk with God in a capsule, I I think every one of us should be encouraged by that thought alone. When there's no evidence of things that I can see, God's still working on my behalf. When I'm hopeful, but I don't really even know what to hope for, I know that God has got my life already figured out. So we turn to chapter 13 and 1. It's the introduction of Abraham. Abraham, I believe, is a very pivotal person in Scripture. He is Father Abraham, and rightly spoken. Because this covenant that we are all recipients of was given to Abraham first, and then passed down from patriarch to patriarch. We have been adopted into this family. And so you and I can cry, Abba, Father, because we are a part of the covenant that God gave Abraham. And in Genesis 13 and 1, it says, And so Abraham went up out of Egypt. Now, why is this important? Well, let me, let me just kind of break this down for us a little bit. We need to have some history. You see, God gave Abraham a sevenfold promise. Anybody remember what that is? He said, I'll make thee a great nation. I'll bless thee. I'll make thy name great, thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham. That promise alone has got Abraham's life completely taken care of. There is nothing the enemy can come against Abraham with that can circumvent this problem. As a matter of fact, that means that everything that Abraham hath need of, God promised he would provide. Think of that. Everything is covered. doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in. It doesn't matter how bleak the future may look. God told Abraham, I've got you covered. You have no worries. But in the midst of this promise that God had given, and in the midst of the blessing from the promise that God had given, Abraham finds himself in turmoil. Why is he in turmoil? Well, because there's a famine in the land. So first off, we find that God speaks directly to Abraham and gives him a promise. Says he's going to take care of all his needs. Conditions in the atmosphere change. Dries up all the crops and the water. And what does Abraham do? He doubts God. Now this is almost laughable if it wasn't so tragic. I think we point fingers at Old Testament characters and we say, well, why would they do that? Shame on Abraham. Didn't he believe God? What about Daniel? Didn't he believe God? What about David? Well, didn't he believe God at times? We see many Old Testament characters, some were successful in trusting and believing God and others not. we We look at Abraham here and we say, why would he leave a land that God had promised him Because of a famine, God has the ability to provide for Abraham in a famine. According to this promise, everything that Abraham is going to touch, God is going to take care of. And so Abraham goes into Egypt where it seems to be a little better. And then Abraham finds himself in horrific circumstances. Because this is the first time that it happens, but not the last time, unfortunately, that Abraham lies about his wife, Sarah. How does he lie? Well, he's afraid of the king of Egypt. You know the story. And So he tells the king of Egypt, listen, uh, uh, we don't want no problems here. Uh, This beautiful young lady that you ask about, she's not my wife. Uh, She is my sister. Now, is this completely a lie? Well, absolutely. Oh, oh, I know the fact that there was a half-sister thing. But is it completely a lie? (laughs) Absolutely. Because a partial lie is still what? (laughs) Amen. And so he lies about it, which is again, doing what? Not believing the promise that God gave. But here's what's amazing. Even in the Old Testament, which we know is under the law, we still find that God extends grace and mercy. Think about that. The character of God has not changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So you know what, that's good news, that's good news, because you and I, though we may doubt God, and though we may question the promises of God, and though we may not believe that God can provide for us, what happens? God will still forgive us of our unbelief. Somebody needs to say amen. God will not only forgive us, but God will also protect us and keep us. It's kind of like, um, uh, well, I was going to say, if you're driving down the street with, without a uh, seatbelt on, but, but maybe we should just talk about where we live. If you go out to Walmart without a face mask on, God has the ability to even protect you. Now, I'm not advocating not wearing face masks. Please don't misunderstand me. But I do think that our uh, disbelief or, or even our stupidity, our ignorance, or sometimes our, uh, the times where we don't believe that God can protect or can, can keep us or that God can provide for us, we doubt and we murmur and we complain. What does God do? Sometimes God shows up anyways. Amen. That's why when I come to church, though I'm not deserving of, of God's blessing and though I shouldn't even feel the presence of God, sometimes because there may be things that are not conducive to what God has asked of me, I still can lift my hands and what? Feel God's presence. What does that say? That God has mercy and grace for those that believe in his promises. Amen. Amen. Abraham finds himself in this mess, and so he he quickly leaves and is forced to leave Egypt because even the king of Egypt, though Abraham cannot embrace and believe that God can provide and keep and bless, the king of Egypt does. How many would say this, that there's believers on your job that believe in God for you? How many has ever had a friend that believes in God more than what you believe in God? I mean, that's tough to admit, but there's some people that believe that God can do anything. And because you're a Christian, they believe that you believe that God can do anything. Never forget our neighbor. Uh, it took me years before I even knew his name. And uh, he, never, he never did get my name. He just called me preacher. I don't know how he figured out I was a preacher. But uh, my first meeting with him is when I would come outside of my house. Didn't matter if it was in the middle of winter. Didn't matter if it was in the middle of summer. Uh, this was in Alaska. He would holler at me and talked to me from the upstairs window from his recliner. seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Well, I, I found the story out. He's a young guy. He was about 24 years of age, and, and he was in the middle of having surgeries. He had, in one year, he had 12 different surgeries on his back and vertebrae. Uh, he was in the striker brigade, and uh, he was actually a, a special force operative that operated out of uh, uh, Fort Rich there in Alaska, and he had done several tours to Afghanistan, and his last one, um, he was the machine gunist in a small uh, group of scouts that were going all through Afghanistan. And uh, they ran over an explosive device, and it blew him out of the vehicle that they were in, messed him up completely. Uh, they recovered. They began trekking across Afghanistan behind enemy lines for months. And for eight months, he carried a 100-pound pack on his back for eight, six, eight months, something like that, and didn't know that he had crushed three vertebrae and uh, had several discs that were torn they just morphined him up all the time and finally was able to come home. Thus the surgery procedure began. Went through all that to tell you. So he's sitting up there in his, his recliner and he would holler at me and we'd have conversations in my driveway, me speaking up to the window. And uh, we got to know each other. And he's a good guy. Uh, I'll never forget the first time that he called me up and he found out that I was a preacher. He asked me what I did and I told him. So he said, hey preacher, come up here. And, and uh, he said, front door's open. And so... Uh, opened the front door and, and walked in. Come on up the stairs. I walked up the stairs. Awkward. Absolutely. Let me just tell you this. Uh, when, you, when, you just, when you do things for God, God puts you in all kinds of difficult situations. I'm not a real extrovert person. I know sometimes that's hard to believe, but I am a, I am a complete, absolute introvert and have been all my life. I force myself to do extroverted things. My wife, she's the extrovert of the family. We go to general conference or some big meeting, and she is full of energy and love and life. I cannot wait to get home and be by myself. And it takes me several days to recoup. That's how I know. Brother Kilman, thank you for that. That's how I know that I am an introvert. And, uh, and so uh, I uncomfortably walk up that stairs, and sure enough, there he is. And he said, Preacher, said, I'm about to have another surgery. I want you to pray for me. I laid hands and began to pray for him. That began a long friendship with this young man, and I enjoyed our conversation. I remember the first time that Brother but he was able to get out of his chair and come down and, and actually talk to me on crutches in the parking lot, and uh, it was a great time. We actually got to spend some time together. We, we enjoyed being out in the front yard, and we'd shovel snow together, and he, he wouldn't shovel so much, but I shoveled snow, and he would He'd talk to me as I shoveled snow, and, and uh, one day, I don't know what happened, but his dog got sick, and so he asked me to pray for his dog, and, uh, and I prayed for his dog. Uh, you do what you got to do, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my belief is if somebody needs prayer, it doesn't matter if they need it for their dog or they need it for themselves, just pray for people. And guess what? God healed the dog. So I've got a pretty good ministry amongst the dogs. If anybody needs a dog healed, God's been using me in that in the past. So uh, please don't bring them to church. That's happened before. We don't want that to happen again. and uh, So that convinced him that, well, maybe there's something to this Christianity thing. And so uh, I walked out of the house one day, and he hollers at me again. He says, hey, preacher, I need you to come up here. And uh, so I didn't know if it was going to be praying for a dog. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I came up the stairs, and he said, I want you to meet my wife. And he said, uh, he said you know, he said, I-, I believe that when you pray, things happen. And I want you to pray for my wife and I, because we've been trying for years to have a child, and we haven't been able to have a child, and uh, so I'd never done that before, and and uh, that was going to be interesting for me, I thought, well, I I guess God does that, <laughs> and uh, so I laid my hands on their head, I got some, I actually asked them, I said, you got some oil, and they said, what kind of oil, I said, well, do you have olive oil, that's what I prefer, they didn't have any olive oil, so I, I grabbed the, the the whatever that yellow massive jug of corn oil is, and and dip my finger in there. I figured God understood, and and uh, laid my hands on, and began to pray. Lord, help this couple to have a baby. And uh, you're not going to believe this, but God answered that prayer as well. And a few months later, he hollers at me. and said, "Preacher, I need you to come up here." And I walked up into his house, and he said, "Well, show him, honey. Look." And he wanted me to look at his wife's uh, stomach. Uh, she 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 had a little. I guess I'm too much information, and. Uh, And uh, it was uncomfortable again. I thought, well, hallelujah. And uh, sure enough, when that baby was born, about 10 months later, he, he wanted to show me the baby. And he said, now, I want you to, can you baptize this baby? And then I had to tell him, well, we don't do infant baptisms. He said, well, the Catholic Church does. I said, well, well, I'll dedicate the baby, but but we're not going to baptize the baby, but we'll dedicate it uh, to the cause of Christ. And he was excited. And it was amazing because in that time of my life, uh, it seemed as if the enemy was coming against me with my spiritual walk with God. I, can, I can't go into all the detail, but we were pastoring at the time, and, and the enemy was attacking us over and over and over again from every side. And I'll tell you what, what I needed more than what that young man needed was to see the prayers that I would pray, God would answer. And sometimes when you walk onto your job, you may not always believe that God can have a revival at your workplace. And you may not always believe that God can do some amazing thing through you. But guess what? There are people around you that need to know that God is able. And it may come through your prayer. And it may come in moments that you're uncomfortable with. But know this. God God can use people to encourage your faith. And I believe that's what happened to Abraham. Because Abraham has the darkest moment of his life, so to speak, where he doubts God and he lies about his own wife. And yet here he is, he retreats back into himself. He leaves Egypt and he goes to Bethel. What Abraham was doing was he was separating himself. Now don't mistake separation for isolation. Separation is where you pull back from the world. Isolation is where you cut everyone off. Isolation is never good. Separation, however, is a concept that God has started all the way back in the Old Testament and we see goes through the New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, we must be separate from the world. Let me say that again, we must be separate from the world. We've got to talk differently, we've got to act different, we've got to look different, we've got to process spiritual things different. We must be separate from this world. It's okay every now and then to say, not going there not going to be involved in that not going to think that way definitely not going to act that way ladies and gentlemen what the world needs is not a new politician or a new political uh, uh, plan but what the world needs is Jesus Christ and it needs a church that knows who Jesus is that is separate come on we need to be proud of who we are God has called us out we believe that there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism I'm separate from other people I don't act that way and I don't talk that way and hopefully I don't look that way we must be separate and Abraham separated himself so that he could recover what he had lost spiritually separation from the world needs to happen so that we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord not isolation when you make a mistake it's not time to cut yourself off from other believers that's dangerous But it's okay to pull yourself away from the world and the influence of the world and say, you know what, I need some time with Jesus. I need to get a hold of God. I believe that was the first mark of a spiritual man. Separation. Where Abraham separated himself and he found himself in a place where he could commune with God. Let me just say this, the world is the enemy of God, by the way. There's nothing in the world that we should embrace. There's nothing in the world that we should love. There's nothing in the world that we should gravitate towards because this world is not our home. We're strangers passing through. And so separation from the world, but don't fear, well, I'm going to be irrelevant. You know what? We don't have to be relevant to where people are at. We just have to be relevant to where he's at and what he's required of us. Let me say this, the Bible is the most relevant book that's ever been written. It's not too old-fashioned to change someone's life. It's not too out of touch to, to turn someone around and lift them up out of darkness, amen? It's okay to be a little irrelevant, not really understand maybe where people are at, but we can still have compassion for them, and we can still love them, and we can still reach them, amen? I don't have to go down to the bar and drink to figure out what the alcoholic is going through. Hallelujah. I can still be separate, but yet reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I know there's power that's in the word of God. Amen. Separation is a God idea. The second thing, the second mark of a spiritual man, I believe, is this. It's sanctification. Now, separation and sanctification are are part of the same coin. It's just two different sides. What differentiates separate? And What differentiates sanctification is not being pulled away from something, but it's what we're being pulled away for or to. So sanctification simply means that God has set us apart for some spiritual task. Separation means that I've retreated from the world. Sanctification means that God has set me apart to accomplish something in His kingdom. We used to have preachers that preached sanctification all the time. We don't hear even that word even mentioned hardly from the pulpit, sanctification. Why? Because we like separation, but don't ask me to do something for the kingdom of God. Because that's going to challenge my personality. Brother Kilman, I love Brother Kilman. Brother Kilman, he, he, he got us turned on to these uh, personality tests years ago. And, uh, and they were great, man. And my wife loves personality tests. My wife has been driving down the interstate giving me a personality test on the phone. And, uh, and, and I actually have missed some of the answers, didn't get them quite right. She said, no, 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 that's the wrong answer. So she'll answer for me a lot of times. And, and so she really helps me figure out what my personality is. I get so frustrated with that because I tell her all the time. I said, I don't need anybody to tell me why I act the way I act. I, I know why I act the way I act. I know that I have this problem with people and crowds. I don't need someone to tell me that. You know what I believe sometimes? If you're not careful, that personality tests are an excuse for bad behavior. I'm not making any friends probably, but I've seen too many people say, well, I can't help it, that's just my personality. I'm rude, I'm obnoxious, I'm gonna tell you exactly what's on my mind, even if it hurts your feelings because that's just my personality. Well, a personality should not be an excuse for bad behavior, it should identify those traits that are obnoxious and not correct. Let me just say this, you know what the greatest personality test is? It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit should trump every personality test. Because if you're not bearing fruit, what's going on with the tree? What's the initial evidence of the Holy Ghost? What should be the evidence after that? Fruit. We we get a lot of people filled with the Holy Ghost and thank God for that. But there's a lot of people that that's the only experience they have with the Spirit. Because after that, they're not bearing the fruit. Do we need to sing the song, Love, Joy? I mean, because that's essential to the spiritual growth of individuals. You don't bear fruit around some people and not other people, by the way. Uh, you, You don't have fruit for your family and fruit for your friends and then fruit for your neighbors. It's just fruit, ladies and gentlemen. You see, we must become spiritual people. This is the second mark. It's sanctification. You know what God is wanting us to do? He's wanting us to not just be separate from the world, but He's wanting us to be set apart for a task that God has called us to accomplish. Now let me just be really bold here right now. I believe that every person in this room is called of God. Your calling may differ different from the person you're setting next to you, but there's still a call of God in your life. The call of God is to reach those with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To reach those with the gospel. To be set apart and sanctified by God. Let me describe it like this. We were driving up through Hatcher's Pass. My wife and I and two very close friends that came to visit us. And uh, I didn't know it at the time and I did not do this intentionally. Um, Although if I would have known it, I would have done it intentionally. Uh, But the life of ...of our friends was terrified of heights and had no idea. And so we're driving up through Hatcher's Pass. Now, I didn't think that this was one of those terrifying drives that there's a 10,000-foot drop on one side of the road. Um, It may be several hundred or so, maybe a little more than that on occasion. But as we begin to drive up, it's one of those strange end-of-July days where it starts spitting snow because we're at such a high elevation... And uh, I can hear people in the back seat praying on occasion. You know how it is when you go around the curve just a little bit fast and someone starts going, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And uh, I thought maybe it was just the beautiful vistas that was causing this spiritual experience with him in the back seat, my wife and, and my close friend's wife. But actually, she was terrified. It got so bad that she took a blanket that we had and covered her head completely up with a blanket because that was going to help in case we rolled down the hill, apparently. No, she was just trying to mask any visual stimulant of, of dropping off a cliff, I guess. And, and she was terrified. and It made me feel bad. And, and so, uh, as a good husband, he was laughing hysterically at his wife in the back seat praying with a blanket over her head. And, and finally, we got to a place where I, I promised I would slow down And what I did was, I started driving in the opposite lane to get further away from the edge of the cliff. Because that's the concept of what sanctification is all about. It's not just being separate, but it's being set apart so far away from the danger so that God can use me to accomplish a spiritual task. It's not just being lukewarm on the fence or just being a little bit close. It's kind of like, how close can you get to the edge of the cliff before you fall off? Well, it shouldn't even be that concept. How far away can I get to assure my safety? That's what sanctification is. When we come to church, it's it's the time to fill up so that we can go back out and reach the lost. To make an impact. To display the fruit. To help our workers and co-workers alike. If we want to change Indianapolis, we've got to pray... But prayer without works is dead. So we've got to put action. Now I appreciate these prayer walks. I think that will push back darkness and it will break free spiritual things. No question about prayer. But if all we do is pray and we never reach, we're never set apart for a task, then we will never accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. We've got to do more than just pray. We've got to put action behind the words. You see, Abraham... Had wrestled with all of this in Egypt. And he was pulling himself away. Here's a third mark of a spiritual man. It's sacrifice. Because after Abraham pulls away from Egypt. He sets himself apart. What does he do? He finds himself at Bethel. He finds himself at a place where he begins to build an altar. If you begin to search out. Genesis, you'll see that four, there's five separate times, but two of them are the same. There's four separate times that Abraham builds an altar. There may be more, but all we have is a record of four that Abraham did and built in Scripture. Abraham is sacrificing unto God. He's building an altar. A sacrifice. You know, I'll never forget those altars that, that I built at not just my church, but at youth rallies and youth camps, and and district conferences, those altars that I built as a child and as a young man, even as a young minister, a young husband, a young father, an old guy. Those altars I can go back to, I can go back to in my mind. It doesn't do anything for God, but it sure does a lot for me. When I go back to those altars and I remember those times where I sacrificed into God. I said, God, I'm not going to waver from this. I'm not going to turn my back on what you've called me to do. God, no matter what the cost, I'll give all to you. Abraham was sacrificing into God to reestablish covenant. Kilman preaches about covenant all the time. Covenant is a powerful concept in the Word of God. Covenant, being separate, sanctified, and then to sacrifice let me just say this if our relationship with god does not include sacrifice then we're not living for god correct because when abraham got back to bethel you know what he did it says he he set his tent up this was a pivotal moment i believe in abraham's life abraham had cattle abraham had gold and silver abraham was a wealthy man he could have built the biggest mansion that he could have ever imagined. He had the potential to do that. But Abraham now was reminding himself that God has called me to a faraway land. When we see the calling of Abraham, what does God say to Abraham? He says this, he said, "'The Lord said unto Abraham, "'Get thee out of thy country.'" And so when he put that tent, you know what he was doing? That was a sacrifice that he was making as well. He was telling God that I have not abandoned the promises that you've given me. And I've not walked away from this relationship. I'm still going to travel wherever you tell me to go. I'm still going to be who you've called me to be. Ladies and gentlemen, if sacrifice is not a part of our life, then as a believer we have forgotten what it is to truly give ourselves to Him. We must give ourselves to Him. On the flip side, we look at Lot, and Lot never one time in Scripture is it recorded that he built an altar into God. Not one time. So let's look at this flip side. You have Abraham, who is a righteous spiritual man that has made mistakes, but now comes back to God to make it right. And now you have Lot. And Lot is a man that we see that has a very strange appetite. You see, I would say that we could break Lot down into three major failures of his life. The first failure and weakness is his weakness in devotions. In 13 and 5 when Abraham builds an altar, what does Lot do? He just kind of rides along in the spiritual sacrifice that Abraham was giving to God. It could have stated in there, maybe it should have stated in there, that when Abraham built an altar, that Lot followed suit and built an altar unto God himself. The promise just wasn't for Abraham, I believe. I believe the covenant could have been extended to Lot. But here was Lot, he was weak in his personal devotion. He didn't sacrifice. He never worshipped. We also see the second thing is uh, he had worldly desires. Well, we're going to talk about that. Because Lot gets to a place uh, that his desire for the things of this world was more than for spiritual things and of God. Here's the terrifying part. Was Lot a spiritual man? He was a spiritual man. As a matter of fact, he was a righteous man. If you don't believe me, let's turn to 2 Peter. Quickly, turn to 2 Peter. And let's look what 2 Peter has to say about it. Peter records this in in the second chapter of 2 Peter. And he says, The turning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, who was vexed with filthy conversations of the wicked. So he had a problem with their conversation when he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. For the righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So thank you, Apostle Peter, for letting us know that Lot at one point in his life was a righteous man. And so you're telling me that righteous men can walk away from the presence of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're saying that Lot who because of weak devotions, because refusing to sacrifice, that he got his eyes distracted by worldly things? Absolutely, that's what happened. Because when Abraham comes to Lot, because there was issues boiling between Abraham and Lot. Now, this is rather interesting. We begin to look further on here in this chapter of of Genesis, and we begin to see that in chapter 10 or verse 10, rather, of chapter 13, we begin to see that something begins to transpire between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Now, the first time that it happened, what does Abraham do? He does absolutely nothing, which I think is interesting in itself, because there's a lot of times when there is something that's pushing or pressing upon us. God does not always call the believer to action, but sometimes God calls us to wait on the Lord. There's power in waiting on the Lord. We sing songs about that. You'll renew your strength. There's a psalmist wrote a song about eagles. They that wait upon the Lord. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You know, there is a beautiful thing of waiting on God to give the answer. I appreciate creative people and I appreciate people that that um uh, you know that personality trait what is that a personality trait it's not an intp or jt or it's one of those extroverted so it starts with an e Uh, that personality where you have that a type personality brother killman help me out here what's it called it's an entj where you just you just step in and take the bull by the horn so to speak and wrestle it to the ground You know, I think there's some times where you have to be that type of person, where you confront the issue head on. But I believe there's other times where you have to wait on the Lord and allow Him to renew strength and allow Him. Can I be very personal? I don't know if I can say this. Hopefully the internet feed's not on. She's probably not watching anyways. What do you do when you believe that your Sunday school teacher for your three and four year olds is smoking? What do you do? Well, you get her out of the Sunday school department. Brother Healy, that's what you do. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. And, and I, there were so many compelling things that was building a case against this. And I knew that she probably had a little issue with this. And so I told my wife, I said, we got to pray about this. I need to figure out how to, how to handle this. Uh, she's got family members, a sound guy and, and the drummer and, and uh, her, her, her mother even helps the church out every year with the tax write-off. She owns a business. And and, uh, anybody ever been in a situation like this where you start calculating everything that could happen if you make one decision? And I thought, so if, if I kick her out of the Sunday school, how's that gonna affect everybody else in the church? Maybe this brings some insight. You wonder why pastor's not dealing with an issue right now because it's not just about the issue. It's about everyone involved. Let me tell you something. We're in the soul business, ladies and gentlemen. And every soul matters. It doesn't matter what position they hold. It, the feelings of people should be our greatest concern. Now, we have to do right, and we have to stand and err on the side of righteousness. No question. I was praying, God, and every time that I would go to, to move against this, God checked my spirit and said no. And I thought, well, that's not of God. I kept saying, God, I, I know I need to take care of this because she is... Influencing our three and four year olds, I do not want to have to deal with three and four year olds that are smoking cigarettes before they're six. I, I can't handle this, and and uh, and I didn't know what was going on in that classroom. I was trying to sneak into the classroom and listen at the door, seeing if I could pick up. Any, y'all have never been there. This is uh, this, you're, you're not going to get this kind of preaching any place. I'll tell you that, but. I didn't know what to do. I was young. I had no idea. I kept praying, God, i got to deal with this. Tell me how to deal with this. And God kept telling me, no, no. My wife kept saying, when are you going to deal with this? I said, I don't know. I keep praying, and God keeps saying no. She's like, that is not of God. She's that extrovert, remember? I said, well, I don't think it is either, but I don't know what to do, and I cannot go against what I felt God speak to me. Let me just say this, it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense. It's like that time of confusion. If you don't know what to do, then don't do it. That's probably the most profound, simplistic advice that you can get. Let me say it again, if you don't know what to do, don't do it. Just wait on God. I started praying, God, you got to answer. It hadn't been but about a week and a half, maybe two weeks she meets us at the church early. She said, I need to talk to you and your wife. Absolutely. We, we went up to the office and we sat down and she said, you know, I'm just so overwhelmed. I think I need to step down from Sunday school and everything. I said, really? She said, yeah, and um, maybe it should be next Sunday. I said, oh, sister, you know what? If you're stressed out, I think it would be wrong of us to expect you to be in that classroom this morning. As a matter of fact, my wife is going to teach your Sunday school class, and she's going to take that right now. And, you know, don't you worry. You know what God did? He worked it out before I could mess it up. Oh, hear me, somebody. You're stressed out and don't know what to do? Wait on the Lord. God has got you, He'll work out all the circumstances. God will take care of you. Oh, if, if Abraham trusted in God, why couldn't I trust in God? Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Peter assures us that Lot was a righteous man. I'm trying to hurry. It's already been 37 minutes. He was a righteous man, but somewhere Lot's righteousness began to wane. He was weak in his devotions. He was worldly in his desire. When this issue between Lot and Abraham began to arise, you know what Abraham could have done? Well, God's given me the patriarch blessing God has given me this promise and so I'm going to choose the best of the land and I'm going to let you choose the rest Abraham could have said that but what does Abraham do no Abraham is going to step back because he understands that God has already got this worked out Lot looks at the, the land and he begins to see that the land towards Sodom and Gomorrah is perfect for raising cattle because that's what he was but never once do we see in scripture now let me take a little liberty here Not much, I'll be careful. But never once do we see in scripture that Abraham asked the question, is Sodom good for raising a family? But he considered, is this good for my cattle? You see, it was what he could get out of it. It's how he could prosper. But he never considered the most valuable treasure that God had blessed him with, his children. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be careful what jobs we're taking, what opportunities that we're stepping into, because if we lose our children, then we have lost the most priceless, priceless thing that God could ever afford a family, and that's our sons and our daughters. We've got to be careful what it is. We need to make sure that we are considering everything that we step into and every decision that we make. Is this going to keep my family saved? Lot never considered that his Desires were worldly. Number three, he made wrong decisions. Not only did, did Lot make one wrong decision when he moved to Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we, we can go on in scripture. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but, but he made this decision to go into Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was just going to be close to it, but not in the city. What happens? We find that he gets closer and closer, right? And before you know it, he's setting in the gate, and before you know it, his family's living in the city. Let me just say when you start walking towards the world it's hard to stop. When you start enjoying the things of this world it's hard to pull back and say no that's that's far enough. That's all the spirit of God's going to allow me to indulge in. Ladies and gentlemen be careful of our desires. Be careful of our desires. Lot doesn't just make the mistake once but he moves into Sodom and Gomorrah and we know the story. An army comes in, destroys everything around them, takes captive not only Lot and his family, but also other people that are in the city. And Abram has to chase them down, and Abram has to deliver Lot from this army that has captured him. And what does Lot do? goes right back to Sodom and Gomorrah. My goodness, you would think that Abraham had an idea that this is a dangerous place. This is not good for me. And by the way, what's a righteous man doing, sitting in the council of the elders, by the way? Because at the city gate, that's what he was. He was an elder that was giving approval of the laws that helped the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to accomplish evil deeds with their life. So what's a righteous man doing? Well, I'll tell you what a righteous man A righteous man that was weak in their devotion, worldly in their desire, and wrong in their decisions. You see, Lot could have learned a lot from Abraham, amen? Here's why it was so bad, and I'm trying, to, I'm trying to wrap this up. This is what was so bad with Lot's decision. You see, when he and Abraham were coming at odds, Scripture is very clear, chapter 13 and verse 7. It says, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanites, the Prezerites dwelt in the land. I think that's interesting that they pulled out the very people that dwelt around and were observing the strife that was taking place between Abraham and Lot. I wonder if our, testimony, if our testimony is being hindered useless by the strife between believers. Not only is it not good for brother not to get along, but to do so at the sake of a bad testimony to those that are around us Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot let our divisions create issues that when people look into the church, all they see is people that are talking against each other and coming against one another. We've got to resolve the differences so that, God, so that God can bring unity. Amen? Unity will never happen unless I'm willing to let go of the issues that I have with the person that's sitting in the pew next to me. And sometimes that begins at home. And other times it begins when I walk into the door of the church And so Abraham and Lot needed to deal with this problem, and they did so. It didn't take care of the problems. You see, Abraham had an obligation. Why? Because Abraham's problems were compounded, and his obligation was to Lot, who was very clearly not a spiritual individual. Lot didn't have spiritual discernment. Lot didn't know the decisions that he should make. He wasn't sacrificing it to God. He wasn't sanctified. He wasn't separated from the world. I believe that it was Abraham's obligation to help Lot make the right decisions. And maybe if we could lay fault at anyone's feet, maybe we could lay some fault at Abraham's feet. Because here he was, clearly the wiser man in this. And never one time did he set Lot down and talk to him about the follies of the decisions that he was making. I'll never forget as a child, when I got to my teenage years, I felt like that they were being nosy. But I look back now and I realize that they were being led by God. There were several elder ladies in our church that it seemed like on a weekly basis in my 15th and 16th year of my life that they would come up to me and they would say, Jason, how are you doing spiritually? Are you still living for God? Are you still loving Jesus? Are you still staying true to your calling? I would look at them and I'd say, well, I don't have a calling. You know what they'd say to me? Oh, yes, you do. God has his hand on your life. I'd walk away sometimes. And there I'll be honest, there were times where I was a little offended. Well, what gives them a right to come talk to me? You know what they were doing? They had lived a life. And they had walked down that same path. And they knew a young man that was standing at a crossroads. Elders in the church, I'm asking that each and every one of you. If you can help somebody, help a young person. If you can help a young couple, reach out to them. If they're not coming to church, it's not always the pastor's responsibility to check and make sure that every person is in attendance on Sunday. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility as a figure like Abraham to reach out to Lot and say, Lot, I'm concerned about the decisions that you're making. I believe that we could create an environment not just of accountability, but an environment of spiritual impartation where we allow God and what He has done for us. We can allow that, that spirit to be imparted through prayer and through through teaching and through God's anointing. And that spirit will help others to achieve what God has called them to achieve. I'm asking you to stand to your feet. I'm, I'm trying to close. An individual who is weak in their devotion. An individual who has walked away from godly desires. An individual that is making wrong decisions. As an individual that is setting themselves up for a very dangerous encounter with the enemy of your soul. Ladies and gentlemen, if ever we needed men and women of the church not only to watch out for one another but to make sure that we are staying focused on what God has called us. It's this day and age. It's this day and age. We need apostolics. We need Calvary Tabernacle to become spiritual leaders in our community. We need to make sure that we are setting forth the right example to those that are around us. I'm asking us right now at the close of this service, can we just lift our hands and close our eyes? And would you just very quickly... In your pew, just say, Lord, I want to be a spiritual individual. God, I want your strength, your strength to be made manifest in my life. God, I want to be separate from the world. I want to be sanctified. I don't want to just pull myself away, but God, I want to pull myself away and closer to your calling and what your purpose is. God, I pray. I pray. I give my all to you on an altar of worship. That's my sacrifice to lay my flesh down, to let your spirit give me strength. We give you glory. We give you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.